Good morning from a not-so-sunny Edinburgh. It's Dr Rachel Sutherland, who's representing the Trainees and Members Committee at the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh. Um, these are um, conversations, uh, clinical conversations, and I have got with me today uh, Professor Mark Strachan, who's a consultant diabetes and endocrinologist at the Western General and is also works at the Edinburgh University. Is that right, Paul? I have an honorary uh, professor from the, the University of Edinburgh, yes. I, I never get your accolades quite yeah, right. Um, okay. I apologise. I wanted to pick uh, Prof's brains today about C-peptide. So um, Professor Strachan's done an, an enormous amount of work on the, the realms of C-peptide. Um, this is something that I kind of see as a specialist investigation, but something that we're starting to see a little bit more of when we look at our investigation sets when people come through the acute medicine unit. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to just have a conversation about the setting of C-peptide. So I wonder if you could just introduce the audience to C-peptide a little bit more. Yeah, no, well, C-peptide really is, Rachel, one of my uh, most favourite topics. My my wife thinks I have a very, very unhealthy relationship with <laughs> C-peptide. So, so C-peptide is part of the pro-insulin molecule, um, which is synthesised in the, the beta cells of the pancreas. And just before um, insulin is released, C-peptide is cleaved off and is actually released into the bloodstream in exactly the same amounts as insulin. So for every molecule of insulin that's released, there's also a molecule of C-peptide released. C-peptide really does not have any meaningful biological function. So it's purely a byproduct of the synthesis of, uh, of endogenous insulin. The beauty of C-peptide uh, and the reason why we're using it uh, so much as a, uh, as a as a biomarker in, in the diabetes uh, world is that synthetic insulin, so Actrapid, Humulin S, Novorapid, Lantus, has no C-peptide in it at all. It doesn't. As part of the manufacturing process, you just get insulin. There's no C-peptide. So if you measure insulin in a, on a blood sample from somebody, that insulin could be endogenous insulin. It could be something that's been injected into them. You, you've got no way of, of knowing. But C-peptide, if that's measured in the bloodstream, that has to have come from the pancreas. So C-peptide is a measure of endogenous insulin production. Now, C-peptide as a test has been around since the, the 1970s, actually, and actually within endocrine clinics, endocrine as opposed to diabetes, C-peptide's been around as a test um, for many, many years and is part of the um, investigation of somebody coming, a non-diabetic coming along with a history of spontaneous hypoglycemia. Yeah. So um, the, the classic scenario is that somebody's having recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia, you're thinking, is this an insulinoma? Or is somebody, uh, is there a family member trying to murder them by injecting <laughs> insulin uh, into them? And you've documented during a hypoglycemic episode that their insulin levels are high. And if you measure C-peptide, 
that lets you work out if the C-peptide is high, then you know that they must have, in all likelihood, an insulinoma. Whereas if the insulin high and the C-peptide is low, then they're being murdered or they're they're self-injecting <laughs> insulin. This sounds so, like an MRCP yes, it question. Yes, it is. It's a classic, <laughs> classic MRCP question. So, so C-peptide has been around for, for a long time. What has changed, though, is that it has moved from the endocrine clinic to the diabetes clinic. And that's actually been largely based on work that's been done by a team of researchers in Exeter, uh, Professor Andrew Hattersley and Dr Angus Jones, they are the sort of doyens internationally on, on C-peptide. And what they have shown is that you can use C-peptide in the, in, in the diabetes clinic to identify or help determine the underlying cause of somebody's diabetes. Now you may say, well, you don't need that. What, what's that all about? So at the moment, when we see a new person with diabetes, obviously, leaving aside the acute management of the of the hyperglycemia, obviously, what we're trying to work out is well, what what's the cause of their of their diabetes? And traditionally, we've used relatively simple criteria to determine that. So, for example, so we use the the presence of ketonemia or, or ketonuria as a marker of type 1 diabetes. If somebody comes along in TKA, that's type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Whereas type 2 diabetes will likely make a diagnosis if the individual is not ketan uh, ketonemic at presentation, and if they're older, if they're overweight, if they belong to certain ethnic groups where we know that there is a high prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So for example, people of Southeast Asian uh, origin. So we use these sort of simple features to distinguish type 1 from type 2. But of course, these criteria that we use are not perfect. No. So if you take weight, for example, there is no reason why somebody with a BMI of 35 can't develop type 1 diabetes. You know, that they are as likely to get autoimmune destruction of the pancreas as somebody with a BMI of, of 19. It's just that statistically, if you've got a BMI of 35 and you have diabetes, because 90% of all diabetes is type 2, you, you know, statistically, you're onto a winner if you give them a label of type 2 diabetes. Similarly, age is not as strong, is not an absolute discriminator. So again, people in their 50s and their 60s get type 1 diabetes. Just because you're 55 does not mean that you are immune to getting type 1 diabetes. A perfect example of that is Theresa May, our former Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not breaking any medical confidence there. This is something she's been very uh, open and honest about in interviews. But Theresa May was diagnosed in her mid-50s as having diabetes. She was given a label of having type 2 diabetes because she was a woman of in, 50, her, 50s. in her 50s. But actually, she then endured a year of not very good glycemic control because she was given oral anti-diabetic medication until the penny dropped and it was realised she actually had type 1 diabetes and needed insulin. Yeah. So age, uh, and of course, if, if you just to finish the age point, and of course, we're seeing increasing numbers now of children and young adults presenting with type 2 diabetes, usually in the context of very extreme obesity. So age and, and 
body mass index, ethnicity is the same. There's no reason why somebody of South East Asian origin can't get type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Just because you come from South uh, Southeast Asia does not mean that your diabetes is automatically type 2. But we make a statistical yes, judgment. that's right. Which puts us in the majority. That's right. Most of the time, if you follow these criteria, you will be right. Yeah. But if we enter precision medicine... It, precisely, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And, and the other example of that is, is diabetic ketoacidosis. So I've believed for many, many years that DKA ketoacidosis equals type 1 diabetes. Yeah. But yet we now see increasing numbers of people coming into hospital with DKA who actually have true type 2 diabetes, particularly in the era of drugs like uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors, the empagliflozin, dapagliflozin, canagliflozin. These drugs seem to have a propensity to increase risk of ketoacidosis. So again, ketoacidosis is not the discriminator that we that we thought it was. So what the team in Exeter have, have shown is that we can use C-peptide as a means of identifying people where we might have got the, the, the diagnosis not quite right. So f- most people with true type 1 diabetes will have, because their pancreas has been destroyed by the autoimmune process, should have very low levels of C-peptide. Whereas by contrast, uh, people with, with type 2 diabetes who've got central obesity, who are very overweight, should have and who are insulin resistant, they are then producing large amounts of endogenous insulin to try and overcome that uh, insulin resistance. So they should, in theory, have high levels of C-peptide. Now, there is overlap as in all these things, but as a broad principle, type 1 diabetes is low C-peptide, type 2 diabetes is high C-peptide. And uh, in our centre, centres in, in Lothian, started using C-peptide on our clinic population to try and see if we have misclassified people. The, the cat, I should say, if I've got time, uh, the, the catalyst for this was a patient of mine called Sophie. And Sophie was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in uh, the late 1990s when she was uh, about 8 or 9 years old. And uh, she, Sophie would not mind me saying that through her adolescent and young adult years on conventional insulin therapy, Sophie's glycemic control was not good. And we did all the usual interventions of pump therapy, structured education, try and improve Sophie's control. And it did improve. But by the time it improved, she had very advanced eye complications of diabetes to the point that she's lost a lot of vision in, in one of her eyes, had had numerous bleeds, has had lots of vitreal surgery. You know, she's got advanced eye complications. And Sophie was somebody that, you know, was, I would call, just somebody with standard type 1 diabetes. You would never have thought that it was anything other than, than that. And then we got notified that her father, who was also diabetic, had been found to have one of the rarer monogenic forms of diabetes, MODI. And we tested Sophie, and no surprise, because these conditions are inherited in a dominant fashion, Sophie had this same gene mutation as her father. And 
the form, the, the particular form of, of monogenic diabetes that Sophie had was one that's sensitive to sulfonylureas. And so I was able to start Sophie on glycoside. And after over 30 years, she was able to stop insulin. Wow. And now she has, if you look at her continuous glucose monitoring tracing, her sugar levels are virtually normal. So with the correct, by getting the correct genetic diagnosis, we've got Sophie on the correct treatment for her diabetes. And that has resulted in her being normal glycemic with no hypoglycemia. Now, for on a personal level for Sophie, this is life transforming. Yeah. You just cannot begin to quantify no, no pump, no, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. don't have to think when you go on holiday, have I got enough consumables? Yeah. She's not got the, you know, Sophie, when she was on a pump, had extreme blood sugar variability, as many people with type 1 diabetes uh, do. Very high levels, very low. So she was having, as well, as well as having high average glucose, she was also getting lots of hypos, all the stress, the, the, the misery that goes with that. Now her sugar levels are normal. So... On a personal level, this has transformed her life. But for us as a team, we were extremely upset about this because, you know, I run a, a genetic diabetes clinic and, you know, without being arrogant or big headed, I am good at identifying people with genetic diabetes. My whole team here are good at identifying people with genetic diabetes. Sophie was somebody that was never on our radar at all. Yeah, just was never, didn't even occur to us that she might have, Sophie just had type 1 diabetes. That's what yeah. she had. And so, you know, and if you just think of, of Sophie, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that if she, if the, the diagnosis of genetic diabetes had been made 20 years before and she'd been on, put on glycoside, her life would have been transformed. But also she would never have developed advanced eye complications. Yeah. Um, as a consequence, just the cost saving to the NHS yeah. is seismic. You know, a, a year on insulin pump therapy costs about £2,500. Yeah. Glycoside costs £6 a year. <laughs> yeah. it, you, you know, you, you don't need to do any complex health economics. You know, if you think just of the cost, just the, leaving aside the human cost of the eye problems she has, the cost of all the laser therapy, the intravitreal injections, the vitreal surgery, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah. yeah. You know, all unnecessary mm -hmm. if you get the correct diagnosis. So as a team, we were actually gutted. And of course, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to appreciate that if this has happened to Sophie, then there must be other people in our clinic who we think have got type 1 diabetes but actually they don't have type 1 diabetes. They've been misclassified by us. And so we were aware of the work that had been done in, in external C-peptide. And in essence, what we've done is we have taken that basic clinical research that was done in Exeter and have just dropped it into our routine clinical service. So now we, on, on everybody with a clinician diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, um, we measure C-peptide. And the, the C-peptide is most discriminatory 
if people have had diabetes for three years or more. So okay. you need to wait three years. Is that because you get a phasing out of the pan? you know, as people start to develop? Because the pancreas failing in inverted Yeah, that, well, that, that, so it's because in people with true type 1 diabetes, you do retain endogenous insulin for the first two or three years following diagnosis. We sometimes call that the honeymoon phase, where people can actually come off insulin and but then have to go back onto it again. So if you measure C-peptide there, you might get a false high level that might make you think, well, this isn't type 1 diabetes. But actually it is. It's just that the C-peptide is on a, yeah. on a progressive decline. And then conversely, I mentioned the people with type 2 diabetes who present with DKA. Now, if you measured a C-peptide in anybody with DKA, by definition, it's going to be low no. yeah. because DKA is a state of insulin deficiency. What is happening, though, in people with type 2 diabetes that present in DKA is that they probably, in the run-up to the diagnosis, they've been so thirsty, they've been drinking large amounts of sugary drinks, and so they, they come in with extremely high blood sugar levels because the, the high sugar levels have what's called a glucose toxic effect on the, on the pancreas. So that high glucose hit to the pancreas just the, the beta cells just sort of roll over in their back and kick their legs in there that we can't do anything more and they stop making meaningful amounts of insulin but once you start the person on insulin iv insulin in, in hospital get the sugar levels down the beta cells then recover and they start making endogenous insulin and that's why you then can get the person off insulin and onto tablet treatment but if you measure the c-peptide as a diagnostic tool too early, yeah. then you can you may be uh, misled with it. So, so this is why I was sort of saying at the beginning, it, it requires quite specialist yeah, exactly. interpretation. That, that's yeah. exactly right. So I think so. There's so I, I'm not completely against the notion of measuring C peptide at the at the front door in a new diabetic, but it should not be a blanket that we're doing it on everybody. It has to be thought through very carefully. I really I would say by the diabetes team. Yes. Yeah. Well, what how it's going to be used because say when you're using it in an acute setting yeah you may be misled um uh, with that but when you use it in people who are more than three years out then you can use it to identify people who've been misclassified and that's what we've done now over the the last few years and certainly in the western clinic we identified, well, we, we ended up reclassifying about 5% of our patients with type 1 diabetes were reclassified to either type 2 or monogenic diabetes. So I said, I'm really good at diagnosing monogenic diabetes. Well, I'm actually not so good because we picked up 14 people with monogenic diabetes that we didn't, we were, we didn't even know existed, including we picked up three people with mitochondrial disorders. Wow. You, you know, which, again, you know, it's only, th you might say, oh, it's only three people. Well, actually, if you've got a mitochondrial disorder, that's a multi-system disorder, yeah. cardiac, neuropathy, deafness, all sorts of things. The, the implications of that are not just for the individual, but for other family members. And so, you know, these are important 
diagnoses to make. And 5% is not an insignificant number of a a population. And it goes back to that precision medicine and being able to give the person then the right treatment, tailoring their care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as as we've, we've previously discussed, in years gone by, there wasn't a great deal of difference in the management of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. You could give a bit of metformin and glycoside uh, and then it was insulin injections, whereas with type 1 diabetes, you're on insulin injections straight away. But, you know, there wasn't a great deal of difference. Now there is a seismic difference. You know, we've got all these new drugs for, for type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is increasingly a technological uh-huh. disorder, which is it requires technological solutions. So, And then the different forms of genetic diabetes, which are rare, but all have nuances of how they're managed. And so getting the correct diagnosis, the precision medicine, as you rightly say, is very important because uh, that ensures then that you're on the right treatment for your for your diabetes. And, and I guess also like you, you're alluding to, genetic causes are really important for, you know, the family members Absolutely. of that individual That's as right. well. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you end up with these cohorts. I see it in, in, in bits of medicine that I practice, you know, and we're becoming more and more mindful of that sort of genetic yeah. element to, right. to, to chronic disease. So in terms of, you obviously use it in your outpatient setting yeah. that's you know yeah. I've, I've worked in your clinic and you know it, it's always a considered conversation I would yeah. say yeah. Would, would be the way that I would approach it of, of doing that test and investigation yeah. in in the context of the diabetic patient within that outpatient setting and in a way I always saw it as the advice should come from a diabetic specialist yeah. Yeah. to initiate that test and the conversation yeah. with the patient would you would you agree yeah with no totally I, I think that's absolutely right I think this is I think this is one for the diabetes teams to to initiate and to sort out. I think that's uh, that's what I would say, and I, and I think it's I, I think we don't really know enough about the use of or the utility of C peptide as a front door investigation at the at the moment. So I have to. I'm always teasing uh, our diabetes registrars here. Who you know they'll come in and say, oh, yeah, there's somebody uh, through in, in the acute receiving unit and with new diabetes, they've got a C peptide of 150. And I say to them, well, how are you going to interpret that? What do what you, you know? I, I always firmly believe you should only do a test if it is going to make a difference to how you manage that individual. And I say, oh, yeah, that C peptide 150. What what are you doing with that result? And uh, so yeah, it's a uh, it's a. Uh, interesting one but you know it may come to pass see i always say to people see peptide is the blood test that keeps on giving because the more we use it the more uses we actually find of it within the clinic and so it may yet come to pass that it is has got utility at the front door but i think at the moment we're not quite there yet I was just going to ask you, because I worked in your clinic for a bit and um, C-peptide at that point was new to me. It wasn't Mm. something I was exposed to working elsewhere. So I did a bit of reading on it. There is a bit of supposition that that it may have some other activities other than just this cleaved protein Mm. that's released Mm. into the blood cells. Mm. I think people keep coming back to it in terms of this metabolic syndrome. And yeah. Is it all wishful thinking? At the well, moment? I so you're right. There, there people have looked to see what does C peptide do because you intuitively think, well, if it's been secreted into the blood. You'd think it might do something. I do think it is wishful thinking. I think C peptide that there, you know, people are trying to find something that that it does. Is it a major 
biologically active uh, peptide, I really need to be persuaded about that. So to me, it's a very, very useful biomarker and that's the way that you know, I think it should be used. So at the moment, at, the evidence yeah. says this yeah. is a, a byproduct. It's a, it's a, yeah, that's it. It will yeah. tell us how much yeah. exogenous insulin yeah. you're producing. Um, excellent, because that's really informed um, my understanding of it based on my MRCP. Yeah, 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 killed absolutely. With insulin. yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> it's the classic, uh, <laughs> classic MRCP question. Um, so, so thank you for, um, yeah, for, for increasing my knowledge on the area i hope you've all found that useful and thanks again prof not at all pleasure thank you thank you